Welcome to this podcast on When Do Conflicts End? Legacies and Law. Produced here at Queen's University Belfast, this is part of a series created in the University's Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, focusing on the ideas and research of academic experts here at Queen's in relation to the study of conflict. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined today by Professor Bryce Dixon, Professor Kieran McAvoy, and Professor Louise Malander. Louise Malander is Professor of Law at Queen's University Belfast. Her research focuses on international human rights law, international criminal law, and law and politics in political transitions. Professor Malander is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and has been a recipient of the British Society of Criminology Book Prize. Her publications include her 2008 study, Amnesty, Human Rights and Political Transitions, Bridging the Peace and Justice Divide. Kieran McAvoy is Professor of Law and Transitional Justice at Queen's University Belfast. A member of the Royal Irish Academy, he has held visiting positions at, among others, New York University, Harvard and the London School of Economics. His books include his 2001 monograph, Paramilitary Imprisonment in Northern Ireland, Resistance, Management and Release, and his co-authored study, Beyond the Wire, Former Prisoners and Conflict Transformation in Northern Ireland. Bryce Dixon is Professor Emeritus at Queen's University Belfast, where he was Professor of International and Comparative Law between 2005 and 2017 active in human rights NGOs in Great Britain and Northern Ireland since the 1970s. Professor Dixon served two terms as Chief Commissioner of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission between 1999 and 2005. His publications include the European Convention on Human Rights and the Conflict in Northern Ireland, which was published in 2012, and Human Rights and the United Kingdom Supreme Court, published in 2013. Bryce Dixon, I'm going to start with you. I referred there to your book on the European Convention on Human Rights. Could you say something, please, for listeners about the central argument of that study regarding the ECHR and Northern Ireland? Yes, Richard. I guess the central message is that while the European Convention was relevant to the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, its impact became effective uh, late in the day, too late in the day to have any real influence on the application of the law in Northern Ireland. It's partly because the European Convention itself was going through its early development from the 1960s to the late 1990s. Um, In fact, it wasn't until 1998, the year of the Good Friday Agreement, that the European Court of Human Rights became a a permanent full-time court in Strasbourg without a European Commission through which you had to go first to get to the court. And up until that time, the Commission and the court had been very conservative, very deferential towards member states of the Council of Europe when interpreting the European Convention. So in relation to internment in Northern Ireland, for example, as in Ireland uh, back in the 1950s, the European Court held that internment was justified in both cases because there was a public emergency threatening the life of the nation. And the court did not really go behind the state's determination that there was such an emergency at the time. And and actually that remains much the the, the same today. So it wasn't until the the late 90s um, 
indeed uh, after the ceasefires in 94 and after the Good Friday Agreement in 98 that the European Court's decisions began to have a real impact, particularly as regards the right to life under the European Convention, where the, the two main innovations that, they, that the Court brought in were that it's not enough just for the state to be under a duty not to kill people, but it's under a, a duty as well to organise security operations, to plan them in such a way as, they, as, as to minimise the risk of somebody being killed. And that if somebody is killed, that there's then a, a, an independent and effective investigation into that killing. And, and th those two developments have been very influential uh, throughout Europe, uh, particularly in, in areas of conflict, such as in Turkey and Cyprus and the Balkans. Thank you very much. Louise Malander, turning to you, given your expertise in human rights law and also in the relation between law and politics in political transitions, could you say something, please, about the opportunities, the challenges and perhaps about the importance of studying and also teaching these subjects in the north, in Belfast? Sure. Uh, thank you, Richard. Um, I think Northern Ireland is an incredibly stimulating environment to which to work on these issues. I think when I came to study here in 1998, I wouldn't have expected to remain here for much the subsequent two decades. And part of the reason I have done is because of the community, the the density of expertise here and the complexity of the issues that arise from human rights work, that means it's always a very um, stimulating environment in which to be. As Bryce has already mentioned, um, Northern Ireland endured 30 years of conflict, which was ended by the Good Friday Agreement. And this year has marked 22 years of the peace process, which is a remarkable achievement. And particularly if it's put into a global con um, setting. And for that reason, Northern Ireland itself is often looked to as a model by other states who are looking to bring violent conflict to an end. And as someone who looks at human rights internationally and around the world, this interplay between the local and the international is something that I've always found very interesting. Um, human rights were fundamental to our peace process. Enhancing human rights protections and preventing the recurrence of past abuses were part of what the, the Good Friday Agreement promised to deliver. And in the intervening years, human rights have made really high on Northern Ireland's political agendas, and they provided the framework for some profound societal changes, such as the recent changes in reproductive rights. The salience of human rights issues is shown by the, the prominence that they were given in the recent deal to restore our devolved institutions, which contained provisions, for example, to set up a panel to create a Bill of Rights to address Northern Ireland's unique circumstances. So there are a number of ways in which human rights is profoundly important to the society in which we work. But I think Northern Ireland's rich political history also comes with some challenges for doing human rights work here. Uh, in particular, the fact that human rights have often been a contested issue among the different communities in Northern Ireland. In recent years, um, layered on top, I think, of our local contestations over this, the changes within the UK in attitudes to human rights have meant there's growing contestation about how human rights should be understood and what direction as a society we should go in in terms of adhering to international human rights norms. So we work within this context here in Northern Ireland and we have a, a large number of scholars working on human rights issues in different disciplines as well as a very active and skilled civil society doing human rights work. And so for me as a researcher, working here means that I get the opportunity to work directly with and learn from 
other activists and scholars who are doing human rights work. So that's a privilege that it would be hard to get, I think, in some other parts of the world. It also means that human rights scholars um, have an opportunity to engage directly on local policy de debates in a way that has the potential to make a real difference to the society in which we work. And as a teacher, um, I have the privilege of teaching a, a few modules to master students on human rights. And one in particular that I teach in the first semester is human rights in practice. And as part of this module, I'm able to draw on the local expertise of human rights practitioners that we have here and bring um, local colleagues into the classroom to speak to our students. I think that really enriches their understanding of what it means to be a human rights practitioner, to think through some of the challenges and opportunities of that role, and to get a better sense of what their a career in human rights would look like. So I think there's a number of ways in which they're doing human rights here as a student, as a teacher, as a researcher, bring, brings a unique um, setting in which to do that work. Thank you very much indeed. And Kieran McAvoy, turning to you, as with Bryce and as with Louise, your work has engaged with issues which resonate well beyond the university itself. Could I ask, in relation to your work specifically on legacy issues in the Northern Ireland conflict, what, in your view, have been the main achievements of scholarly work and insights there, but also what have been some of the major obstacles to be faced? I mean, I think one of the, the as Louise was um, just reflecting on, one of the aspects of working in Queen's is that it's a posh university, it's a, a red brick proper scholarly place but it's deeply embedded in a society that lived through a conflict all of us um, on, on this chat lived through that conflict and so I think that experience of working in a, in, a, in a good university but in a society that has come through a conflict creates its own moral energy um, I mean roughly I think it's up to a third of adults in Northern Ireland meet the statutory definition of a victim of the conflict i.e they were directly affected or remember their family was affected by the conflict so it's it it uh, being in the, in the university, working on legacy issues, it feels very real, um, and it's 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 a, a, a an energizing area to work on, albeit frustrating at times. In terms of achievements, I mean, I, Louise and I work together with another colleague called Dr. Anna Bryson, together with local NGO colleagues on legacy, and have done for the last six or seven years. Um, our what we've been doing is trying to use our uh, legal skills, technical expertise, to assist the public conversation around these very controversial and sensitive matters. So we've been engaging with um, politicians, with victims organisations, with ex-combatant groups, uh, Republican and Loyalists, with the uh, British Army, with the police. And I think one of the things that the university does is it gives you a, st a status to, to affect that kind of reach. I mean, we can reach all of those constituencies. Our job is to provide technical information, but to try in some ways to demystify the law to we have to we have to be legally rigorous but we have to explain things in a way that makes sense to ordinary people to politicians and so forth and what we do is to try to provide people with a framework within which to have a civilized conversation around what is or is not legally viable in 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 the legacy space so we've worked on on producing for example draft legislation after there was a political accommodation here in 2015 we drafted our own bill first to get it out there before the government bill um, I think it probably had some influence in terms of shaping the contents of that bill. Um, we've tried uh, a big controversial issue that some people may be aware of is in addition to 
a focus on truth recovery, on, on, on finding out what happened during the conflict. There's a significant push on, particularly in Westminster, um, for a statute of limitations, for an amnesty for veterans who served here. And again, um, Louise, myself and our colleagues have worked on trying to find legally viable accommodations um, around how to square the circle on that, how to give effect to families' right to truth. But to address the the real concerns that some veterans that some veterans advocates have around elder, elderly soldiers going to prison, so we've 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 tried to inhabit it's a it's a complicated legal and uh, political space. I suppose in terms of the the obstacles, the biggest one, uh, Richard, has been has been political will. I think if there had been significant political will, particularly in Westminster, actually, I think there are probably a, there there is enough political will, I think, to get this over the line in Northern Ireland and certainly in terms of the Irish government. I think the absence of political will and at times uh, indifference and at times ignorance in Westminster has been a huge sense of frustration. And um, we thought we were uh, in January 2020 when. Um, devolution uh, was re-established there was a new commitment in the, for the government to um, establish the legacy mechanisms within 100 days we had a very effective secretary of state probably the most effective secretary of state we'd had in two decades in place it all looked like the ducks were lining up quite nicely for something to actually happen in this space then we had a cabinet reshuffle um, that very effective secretary of state was replaced we have a different secretary of state now and there seems to be a kind of almost like a post-brexit bullish let's get legacy done approach um, by the current government in Westminster. Boris Johnson has an 80-seat majority. No effort really to deal with local political realities, to engage with victims and and to kind of a bullish, just let's, let's just bull on, let's get this done. That has been hugely frustrating, particularly because we had a strong sense um, around Christmas and just after it, that actually there was a deal to be done that could have addressed the concerns, particularly around the veterans issue, but against that about implementing a legacy so, so the big obstacle as ever in these things it's not just about law it's about politics and you need political will to get it done thanks very much indeed louise you've worked in and you've worked on various conflict settings including south africa including israel palestine could you say something about what in your view comparative analysis offers that's otherwise unobtainable in relation to our understanding of human rights law and politics in such contexts Sure. Uh, I think the first thing to note when thinking about this is there's no right way of doing comparative work. There are lots of different methodological choices that can be made, all of which yield different understandings of human rights or different findings, depending on the methods you use. In my own work, I have created databases to do large scale comparisons between the approaches of um, un you know, uh, different countries around the world in addressing dealing with the past. But I've also engaged in small scale um, comparisons with Kieran and Bryce and other colleagues um, looking at how transitional justice policies are developed within different societies. And it's that part of the comparison I'll focus on now. So I think as is well known, when you do single case study research, so when you look at just at one country, you'll get a profound sense of understanding the dynamics of that one place. But the conclusions you may reach may not be understand, it may not be reflective of how transitional justice concepts or actors or mechanisms would operate in other places. So doing comparative work gives you a much broader understanding of differences that can arise or similarities and can help you tease through some of these nuances in ways that reach more generalizable findings. So to give an example, perhaps 
just dif how differences can arise. In transitional justice literature, it's really commonplace to say that an objective of transitional justice is to deliver reconciliation for a society, to reconcile citizens with the state, to rebuild relationships between communities that have been damaged by violence. However, when we take that word reconciliation down to the national or grassroots level in different transitional societies, we see that people respond to it in a number of different ways. So just to, to, to give you an example of these differences, in South Africa, the word reconciliation was written into the title of the Truth Commission that was set up after apartheid. So that was designed to deliver truth and reconciliation, to, which was seen as fundamental to rebuilding South Africa, to building a new unified country and national identity, and was seen as delivering a moral good for victims and recognising their place within society. In contrast, in much of South America, outgoing military regimes that had been responsible for very serious human rights violations granted themselves amnesty laws in which they often used the words of reconciliation in the title of those laws. So in South America, the word reconciliation became understood not as truth, but as forgetting the past, as burying things in order to move forwards. And so rather than being seen as something that delivers for victims. In South America, reconciliation came to be seen as something that victims had to fight against, that to resist. And we've seen decades where those sort of campaigns against the amnesty laws have continued and see, viewing reconciliation as impunity has been part of the debates um, underpinning those campaigns. So there, a single case study analysis would lead you to one understanding of what reconciliation means, but it wouldn't be a wouldn't be a complete understanding. It wouldn't give you such a full picture of how this concept can be understood in different ways in different settings. So comparative analysis can help you tease through these concepts in more detail. And other ways in which comparison can be useful is identifying similarity and cross-national learning. So working within the field of human rights, Obviously, much of what states do is governed by international standards and international law, international soft law, international best practice. And looking at what states are doing in a small number of countries helps us understand better how often vaguely framed international standards are actually implemented on the ground. And that gives us greater clarity in understanding how those standards should be understood and what they may mean in different contexts. Also, it's quite common today for states to look to other experience, experiences and start again. It's quite common today for states to look at experiences in other countries when trying to design their own policy making process. So Northern Ireland's experience of transition was highly influential on the peace process between the Colombian government and FARC. Uh, Ukraine currently is developing a transitional justice process and I've been doing a little bit of work on that, that country in the last year and I found that they're most often drawn to comparing their context with what happened in Central and Eastern Europe during the 1990s. So we see a lot of attempts by countries grappling with what to them are novel policy challenges by trying to reach out to other places and learn from the experience and elsewhere. So doing comparative work helps you track how these ideas spread and evolve between countries. And that can in turn can help us understand better how the field in which we work is evolving over time and across different places. And the final way in which I find comparison is useful, and I think this speaks to what Karen has already been saying about the, the work that we have been doing here in Northern Ireland, is that by reaching out and learning about other countries, sometimes that can help us understand our own context better.
and it can give us inspiration to draw from international models, adapting them, of course, to the particular situation that we have here, but drawing on them nonetheless to try and find ways through some of the thorny issues that we face. And that's certainly something that Karen, Anna and I did when we were drafting the model bill. We would look at what legislation in other countries or different practices in other countries and use that as inspiration to think about what, what could be possible here. Thank you very much indeed. Kieran, I first encountered your research through your book on paramilitary imprisonment in Northern Ireland. You've worked also on ex-prisoners and their role in divided societies. Could you say something about some of the main insights from this research in regard to prisons, in regard to prisoners, in regard to ex-prisoners and their role in political conflict and perhaps in the reconciliation or resolution of that conflict? Sure, and it's a timely day to have this conversation, actually, Richard, because, as you know, a, a, a senior um, a former IRA prisoner, Bobby Story, died over the weekend of natural causes. And funny, I was reflecting on exactly these issues. So in terms of the role of prisons, um, certainly in the, in the Northern Ireland context, the prison, and in many other contexts, the prison is the epicentre of the practical and ideological struggle between the state and non-state groups. Um, and in particular, in a context where if the state is trying to assert that that those who is who are fighting against it are or should be treated as as criminals uh, rather than politically motivated prisoners, then that the, the prisons become another battleground, and that's exactly what happened in the Northern Ireland context, particularly for Republicans, for some loyalist prisoners as well. But the prisons became an ideological and practical battleground here, um, and were a source of great violence. They were a source of so. On the one hand, um, what I looked at in, in my first book, as you know, is was looking at the ways in which the state tried to manage those um, kind of prisoners if you've large groups of politically motivated prisoners they're and they're organized and they're they're resourceful and um, they're, they're a significant managerial challenge and so part of that book looked at the at how the state responded and different models the state deployed but the other part of it looked at the ways in which the prisoners resisted in their terms what they saw as criminalization so using um, for example using the law taking legal challenges uh, using escapes using violence actually violence within the prisons violence outside the prisons mobilizing and organizing collectively um, and so it, it that's the struggle that's the nature of the of the struggle that often happens where, where states are, are locking up people for politically motivated offenses and they become symbolically as well a, um, a, a kind of a, 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 an important site in understanding what's going on in a conflict more generally as 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 prisoners leave once prisoners leave for a lot of inter, the international um, research looking at ex-prisoners and ex-combatants Broadly, they are seen as a security challenge to be managed, um, something that needs to be to be dealt with, so that they don't become spoilers in the in 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 the conflict transformation process. Actually, the Irish context um, demonstrates that they can be more than spoilers; they can be a very huge and significant resource in transforming a society in challenging cultures of violence and so for example to take the bobby story example um, your listeners can actually google it it's on it's a there's a free video on youtube um talking about the maze escape story is a senior ira commander within the prison um him and another senior ira commander jerry kelly who later becomes a, 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 a junior for, a minister in in our uh, devolved executive they're at the center they're at the center of a mass escape attempt um, in which 20 pris 38 prisoners escape, uh, 20 of them actually get further and so forth. Anyway, it's a big moment in the, in the prison history. But both of those men are central to the transformation of contemporary republicanism away from violence towards politics, and they provide significant leadership um, uh, in transforming that, that movement away from violence. 
And so they're a significant resource. There are 35, 40,000 ex-prisoners in the community here in Northern Ireland, um, many of them doing the heavy lifting in terms of reconciliation work, in terms of cross-community work, in terms of challenging cultures of violence. As you know, here we had a long tradition of brutal systems of paramilitary punishment violence. And on both the Republican and the Loyalist side, the, the, the biggest check, the biggest challenge to that deeply embedded culture of, of, um, of punishment violence came from community restorative justice projects um, established by ex-combatants um, who were challenging communities, who were in effect walking the walk and saying to communities, um, listen, there is another way. There is an alternative to violence here. These these people who are who are being victimised um, by our respective organisations are part of our community, and we can we can do something about it. We can find an alternative. What they bring to the table in terms of 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 that challenging cultures of violence is number one their credibility. They have you know they know they understand violence. They've inflicted violence quite often. They've experienced violence. They've been on the receiving end of torture or violence from. From other non-state groups, or indeed from 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 the state, so they understand what violence is about, um, but so they bring a credibility to it. But they also bring leadership skills and indeed negotiation skills. One of the things that has struck me very forcibly over the years is that many of the skills one sees deployed by ex-prisoners and ex-combatants, they actually learnt in the prisons. Um, they learnt those experiences of negotiating with um, their former enemies, of reaching accommodations. One of a, a, a prison governor I, who uh, I became friendly with, who I interviewed during my PhD research, um, ex uh, encapsulated this quite nicely. So I was asking him, this man had 30, 40 years experience of, of as, as the number one, well, eventually the number one governor in, in uh, the Mays prison. And I said to him, how did the IRA prisoners manage over a period of years to get such levels of control over the space um, within the prisons. How did they achieve that? It was quite remarkable in such a secure prison environment. How did they manage that? And his response was, to me was, Kieran, it was the tyranny of reasoned argument. <laughs> that basically they were very effective at, and relentless at negotiating and negotiating and returning to positions. And, went, and Louise and I would have seen this as well over the years in the legacy space. It, it, they, you know, Ex-prisoners and ex-combatants are very driven <laughs> they are and they are they're good at this they're good at negotiations they are, they are good at dialogue and they have patience um and so they brought all of those skills to the conflict transformation process and and for many they are they are the ones who've done the heavy lifting the unglamorous work in local communities the facing down for example of Repu republican and loyalist dissidents um and i think all of us have kind of come to to rely heavily sometimes too heavily on that resource, on on ex-prisoners, ex-combatants will, in verdict commas, sort this out. And particularly on the loyalist side, where they are not, there aren't as many of them, of the, of the uh, uh, numerically or indeed of the calibre of, of um, Republican ex-combatants. And so what you have is a relatively small number of loyalist ex-combatants who've carried a very heavy load um, in terms of that conflict transformation process. And I think sometimes as a society, we've kind of taken them for granted across both communities, whereby we just assumed, well, they'll sort this out. Sensible ex-combatants, they will sort this out. And, you know, people have paid a high price for that health-wise, mental health-wise. I can see it amongst people who I've been interviewing for years. Um, so I suppose that the big lesson for me, Richard, is prisons are central overall, but ex-prisoners um, in our context certainly have been a central resource in the transformation of this place. Thank you very much indeed.
Bryce Dixon, you've written on the UK Supreme Court and written influentially, and the Supreme Court has gained salience in recent memory in terms of Brexit in particular. Could you say something for listeners about the subject of judicial activism in Supreme Courts, whether in the UK or elsewhere? Well, the main question concerning the role of Supreme Courts is how far can they go in making law without trespassing too much on the realm of the elected politicians. Now, in common law countries such as the UK and Ireland, the the very basis of the judicial function is to make law through deciding disputes that have come to those courts. So this was settled back in the 17th century during the civil wars in England, Parliament won that those wars, but they also won out over the courts insofar as the ultimate legal authority in the country is what Parliament says. But if Parliament has not spoken, then the judges are at liberty to develop the law as they wish it to be developed. And if what Parliament has said is somehow ambiguous, then it's the judges who have to interpret that law and in that way develop what's called the common law of the country. That's different from the role that Supreme Courts and other courts play in non-common law countries, so-called civil law countries, such as we find in most European countries in, in Asia and in Latin America, for example. Now, when common law courts are operating they, they often do have a text like legislation to interpret. Sometimes that text is actually a constitution, as in the USA or Canada, for example. But in the UK, of course, we don't have a written document called the Constitution. We do have constitutional documents, Acts of Parliament and the like, but not one overarching constitution. And when the courts in the UK are faced with constitutional questions, then they really are operating, in a sense, in a political context. This was very well illustrated in two recent cases involving Brexit. The first was in 2017, when the issue was whether the the decision to leave the European Union, which the people had taken in a referendum in June of 2016, should be endorsed pretty quickly by the government or whether it required more than that, whether it had to be endorsed by Parliament as a whole. And that very issue went to the Supreme Court at the end of 2016 and in early 2017. Um, the, the courts decided that it had to be the Parliament which triggered the relevant provision in the Treaty for European Union to allow Britain to leave the EU. It wasn't enough for the government to do that. Now, the judges at the lower level who held that held that it was Parliament's function, were, were were pilloried in some elements of the press. They were named enemies of the people by the, the Daily Mail uh, and their photographs were on the front page of the newspaper. They were they were vilified, these judges, as in, as in some way being almost traitors to the nation and certainly overstepping their, their role as judges. But nevertheless, the Supreme Court, uh, a few weeks later, endorsed by a majority of eight to three, the decision of the lower court. Strangely, the, the eight who voted in favour of the, the lower court's position didn't 
suffer the same opprobrium as the, the lower judges did. But still, the two case, that, that case illustrates very well the sensitivity involved sometimes in Supreme Court decisions. The, the second example is another uh, case called Miller. It was taken by Gina Miller when Boris Johnson tried to prorogue Parliament at the end of 2019 for a, a few weeks, uh, much longer than is normally the case. That too was challenged and eventually ended up in the Supreme Court, where this time by 11 to 0, the, the judges held that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson had overstepped his powers in proroguing Parliament for that length of time. Now, that too was a decision not welcomed by those who, who were in favour of Brexit because it looked to them as if this was the judges again interfering in the political process. Common law Supreme Courts also have to deal with sensitive human rights issues on many occasions and that requires them to take a decision as to where to draw the line sometime between clashing interests. They've had to decide on, on issues like um, assisted suicide. Should there be such a right? What are the limits to the right to privacy? Should, should the Prince of Wales have the right to privacy as regards his private diaries, for example? And as well as these sensitive human rights cases, the judges in common law courts and the Supreme Courts ultimately in those countries um, have to, or now are allowed to by their own decision-making, to review administrative action. Back in the 1940s in Britain, the judges developed this idea that challenges could be made to any decision by a public authority if there were suggestions that it was somehow beyond the powers of the authority to make or if it was an improper, unfair decision in some way or if it was even unreasonable. And that, that area of jurisprudence remains very prominent today and the Supreme Court of the UK and indeed of Ireland spends quite a bit of time dealing with those cases. Last year, Lord Sumption, who's a retired judge from the Supreme Court in Britain, gave the BBC Reith Lectures and he complained about the the courts overstepping their remit, trespassing into areas they shouldn't be working in. And that's also been a complaint in other jurisdictions. In Ireland, the Supreme Court has been pretty conservative over the years. It, it hasn't perhaps been as activist as the UK court, even though in Ireland there is a written constitution which the Supreme Court can interpret. The, the two most active Supreme Courts, I suppose, anywhere in the world are the Supreme Court of India and the, the highest court in South Africa. It's not actually called the Supreme Court, it's called the Constitutional Court, but they have been very much to the fore in developing rights and other areas of the law. And it's odd that today judges, certainly in Britain, are taken to be friends of those on the left, uh, whereas 50, 40 years ago it was um, it was the right in, in, in society, those who were, who were more conservatively minded, who favoured judges because they thought that those judges would be conservative, but they're not. They're, they're predominantly liberal these days. And um, that doesn't always go down well in, in, in some political quarters. And finally, in the context of legacy, which Kieran and Louise have been talking about, it has already been the case that the Supreme Court and, and other top courts have had to take decisions on sensitive legal issues as to, for example, what, what constitutes an independent investigation of a killing or how far back does the, the duty to investigate a killing go? 
And no doubt there will be future occasions where the Supreme Court of the UK will have to decide sensitive issues like that. So if we do ever have, let's say, an amnesty law affecting the troubles in Northern Ireland or some kind of law that says we can draw a line under the inquests and the investigations and the prosecutions, the legality of that law will no doubt be challenged in the Supreme Court. And um, the, the various opinions of the judges sitting in that court will be very closely scrutinised by all concern. So we can see that Supreme Courts are extremely important, but they have a very difficult job to do. Thank you very much. Our conversation has ranged very widely across hugely important subjects. We've heard scholars eloquently talking about their research and insights. And one of the things that struck me in all of the comments has been how far the research of academics naturally feeds into wider public debate, policy, public reflection and political decisions. I do hope that listeners will go and look at the Queen's University Belfast website in relation to the scholars who've been speaking today, will follow up in their publications, will read their work and will engage with them. I've been very influenced by the work of the three people we've been hearing from today and I think that it would reward people to go and look at or look again at their work if you've already engaged with it and benefited from it. But in closing today's podcast, it remains only for me to give my profound thanks to Professor Bryce Dixon, Professor Kieran McAvoy, and Professor Louise Malander. Thank you very much indeed. Please rate and review and share this podcast.